Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Firstly, wishing you all a very happy new year. And it's certainly going to be a very busy new year with elections taking place possibly here in Ireland and all over the world. There will be a record-breaking 40-plus countries representing more than 40% of the world's population that's going to have a big, big influence on business. And in particular, our biggest trading partners in the US and the UK will have elections and they'll have serious implications for business and exports and corporation tax here in Ireland. So we're going to be keeping you informed about the policies and those elections that could affect your business and indeed all of our livelihoods. Because those elections, whether you're interested in them or not, they have serious consequences for our daily lives. So today we'll be taking a look at the backdrop of the societies in the UK and the US to see what politicians there are facing as they head into those crucial elections. I'll be talking to Simon Tisdell, who's The Guardian's former US editor and he's currently Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator for The Observer, closer to home. We're going to be looking at the upcoming referendums and the potential for a general election with the law lecturer, Dr Jennifer Kavanagh. So you can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, before we deal with any of that international news, let's start with what's in your own back pocket and look at personal tax and what the situation is in January 2024 for you because the new year brings with it a new budget and there's lots of tax changes this year in terms of tax credits and all of that. So here to tell us what to look out for is Marion Ryan. She's the Business Development Director at Taxback.com. Marion, you're very welcome back to Taking stock. Thanks for having me back, Mandy. Now, just remind us, what were the major and main changes that happened in in relation to tax and personal taxation in Budget 2024 that kick in in January? Yeah, so a lot of things are going to kick in in January there for us. And the good thing about it is that the majority of it, it's automatic. So we, the taxpayer, we don't have to do anything different and we'll just be paying a little bit less tax as the year goes on. So the first thing they did was they changed the rate bands. So they increased the rate from the amount of earnings before you head up into the 40% bracket by €4,000. So what that means is for any of us that are earning maybe above the average there, if you're earning around €50,000 or even a little bit below that there, it's going to be about another €800 in our pocket. So that's nothing to be sniffed at No, there. absolutely not. And what they've also done is they've increased the personal tax credits and the employee tax credits. Now, they've increased them there that there'll be a value of about €100 Euros into our pockets there as well as the taxpayer. And then some kind of unique credits they've tweaked around and increased a little bit there. So the single parent child carers credit, that went up by €50. Euros. Same happened as well with the home carers tax credit. And then the incapacitated child tax credit, it actually went up by 200 euros. And all of those things are said is if you're in receipt of those credits already, you don't need to do a single thing. It's going to be increased and you're going to see your tax bill going down throughout the year. Another one that they've increased is the rent tax credit. That was 500 euros for last year's for 22 and 2023. And this year they've increased it up to 750 euros per person. So again, Mm. it's a nice chunk of cash there hopefully going into people's pockets and then finally they kind of play it around a little bit with the USCT but there's no major huge difference mm. there they slightly increased the bands there from where you go into the 2% up into the 4% they changed the 4.5% down to 4% the whole concept around that was really to capture 
the people that would have seen a slight rise in their income because of the changes that are coming to play in the minimum wage. They didn't want that all to be eaten up mm. by USC and there. So there's not a huge major impact on the USC side of things there. The average person might see maybe another 50 euros in their pocket there as a result of it. But all those things, they do add, add up. up and eventually, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose this time of year as well, you shouldn't also be just thinking about the changes in your tax credits and the changes in taxes for this year. You should always be mindful of the previous years and see what you've missed out on and what refunds you could actually be due. Because now that we're in 2024, we can now look at last year, 2023, and see if there's a refund. And and how does somebody, Marion, how does somebody do that? So you mentioned the personal tax rates, the tax credits, they all happen automatically. But if you're looking backwards to see where you might have overpaid on something, how do you go about claiming that? It's all down to unclaimed expenses and unclaimed credits there. So all those credits, as you said there, Mandy, yeah, they automatically, if you're in receipt of them already, they'll automatically increase. You don't need to do anything. But if we take the rent tax credit, for example. And that was something, Marion, last year, there was a lot of criticism about the government offering it and lots of people who could avail of it just didn't take it up. Yeah, a huge amount. So when they announced this initially, they said that there'd be approximately 400,000 taxpayers eligible to claim it. And then when budgets came around 12 months later, at that stage, there was still only about a 50% take-up. There was only about 200,000 people had claimed it. And there's a few reasons for that. First of all, it's always going to be the case, lack of awareness. We could talk all day long with Seth and yourself, Mandy, about it, but there's going to be people out there that have never heard of it, don't know that they can claim it there. So it's trying to make people aware of it. The second stumbling block a lot of people have come up against is that one of the requirements for it is that you have to be renting from a private landlord that's registered with the RTB. So you need that RTB registration number. And a lot of people just don't want to have the conversation with their landlord looking for that RTB registration number because they're fearful if I have any conversation, they'll increase the rent. It's, it's It's a real sign, isn't it, though, of nervousness on the part of people who are renting. They don't want to do anything that would upset things or the relationship with their landlords. But um, maybe, Marion, moving on from from the rent, let's look at mortgage interest relief. What, if anything, happened there? That's a really nice one. Now, so that was a one-off measure. Well, they said it's a one-off measure. Well, really, uh, can (laughs) you see in an election year this being a one-off measure? I don't know. Yeah, the USC and that was a one-off measure and that's a bit of a say. But the mortgage interest relief, so for last year, 2023, if you paid more mortgage interest last year than you did in 2022, there's potential that we can claim back 20% of that in a refund there for you. Now, it is capped at €1,250. That's the maximum amount of a refund. And there are two kind of criteria that you have to meet. So your balance of your mortgage by the 31st of December 2022 has to be below 500000 but above 80,000 euros. Mm. So and this was, small, this, oh, this Marion, sorry to interrupt you there, Marion, this was to try and help deal with the increases in interest rates. Yeah. Um, yeah. But is there a difference between people who might be on a fixed mortgage and a tracker mortgage? Would they be affected differently? It was tar- targeting really to those on the tracker or variable rates because they're going to be people that saw their interest rate 
potentially increased 10 times in the last couple of years. They're, they're going up and up and up. If you're on a fixed rate mortgage, the likelihood of you paying more mortgage interest in the year is low. The amount that you might have paid is low, but it's, there's no criteria that says that you have to be on a track or a variable rate. So even if it's the case that maybe you, you switched your fixed mm. rate during the year and you paid a couple hundred euros more, there still could be a refund there for you. I think what's kind of penal about it is that an upper limit of 500,000 euros. I know a lot of us go, gosh, a house worth 500,000 euros, you must be rolling it in. But like if it's a house in Dublin, that could be a three-bed semi-detached and that could be two people on a modest income trying to to pay that there. So I think that little part of it is a bit penal there. Mm. I can understand the the 80,000 euros limit there because your mortgage interest would be quite small anyway. Um, yeah, lots of changes there, though, that people need to be aware of. A lot of them, as you say, happening automatically. You need to look out for um, applying for what you might have overpaid last year. And obviously, if you are renting, please take a look at those rental um, uh, incentives that are there for you now in terms of claiming back the tax credit. Yeah. Marion, I just wanted to ask you something about the general wider taxation policy, because... You know, I mean, back in 2015, 2016, it was all about widening the tax base. And of course, taxation is the way the government gets money in. But we are potentially entering an election year now. And there hasn't been much talk of promising of, you know, tax rate reductions. What do you think um, might happen on that front in the year ahead? Do you see that tax and, and bartering and, and promising. Yeah. Tax yeah, exactly. Like Leo will, will go back again. Do you see that p- playing a part in any potential election campaign? Uh, it, the promise might be there. Whether it's coming to fruition is is another story there. We were tentatively promised a 30% tax rate back in the last election cycle. It was going to be their, their mission, this government, to, to bring it in. It hasn't happened yet. It's been kind of rumbled about every time budget season comes around but in actuality it would be hugely complicated to actually implement it it would mean that all payroll providers would have to update their systems and change it the revenue would have to update it I I, I personally don't see it happening it could be on the doorsteps a promise to to all of us but if we would be talking in four years time about our 30% tax rate I would be sceptical (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, as you say, it does resurface from time to time and no doubt it will pop its head up again at some point this year. But Marion, thank you so much for taking the time for t- to take us through all of that today. That was Marion Ryan, the Business Development Director at Taxback.com. Super, thanks a million, Mandy. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. Up next, it's a pivotal year for elections right across the globe and potentially here in Ireland. After the break, we'll be looking at the issues facing politicians in Ireland, the UK and the US. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Now, the forthcoming US presidential election is being billed as a fight for the soul of America. And even though that's exactly how it was framed four years ago, it's no less true now than it was back then. And meanwhile, in the UK, a similar fight has been raging since the Brexit referendum way back in 2016, with the Tories maintaining power despite a succession of calamities and scandals. But is this Finally, the year that Labour will make it back into Downing Street. It's all to play for in 2024. Well, I'm joined now by Simon Tisdall, who's The Guardian's former US editor and foreign editor, and he's currently chief foreign affairs commentator for The Observer. Simon, you're very welcome to News Talk today. Hi, Mandy. Simon, 
Look, I want, I know everybody will be talking about when the elections are happening and will Donald Trump be the Republican candidate. But today I wanted to ask you your opinion on the wider society in the US and how that looks. Um, we're used to having elections where there's an emphasis on policy, maybe even personality, but but not a kind of paradigm shift. So what I wanted to ask you is, is it is it hyperbole to say that US democracy is at stake here. Just how fractured is America now as they go into these presidential elections? Constantly hearing um, comparisons back to the American Civil War in 1860. Why is that? I don't think it's a total exaggeration to say that uh, American democracy as it's been practiced over the post-war period is a, is a, is a risk now. Because Donald Trump was a very uh, unique president and People who worked with him in the White House four years ago, and now some of them are now saying that they think that if he comes back in the second term, there will be an even greater risk to the traditional norms and traditions that Americans are used to. And they have several reasons for saying that, but that's their overall conclusion. Mm. And of course... I suppose he already has stated some of his intentions um, as to what he would do, whether it's a threat or a promise, I don't know. But you might take us through some of the things that he has said he will do if he is re-elected. Not in any particular order. He suggested that this initially at least will be a revenge presidency, that he's going to even the score settle some old grudges with people he feels produced him and were responsible for his legal problems that ensued after the uh, January the 6th insurrection on Capitol Hill in 2020, which is almost exactly four years ago now. Um, you know, he, he faces multiple legal problems, uh, criminal and federal and state cases, um, which are going to run throughout the course of this year. And he thinks he, he says that this is a political vendetta by the Biden administration and by Democrats in state houses across the country mm. to uh, undo his political um, ambitions and um, and rob him again of the of his chance of election in the same way that he says he was robbed in 2020. Now, so he said not so long ago that he. He wasn't, he wasn't going to be a dictator, except perhaps on the first day. That's going to chill down a lot of people's backs, because um, he does have, as we clearly saw during his time in office, dictatorial um, tendencies. He tends to ignore um, contrary opinions. He doesn't like to be contradicted. He he uh, he had a he has a Republican majority in the House of Representatives, but that may not assist. And he would, he would like to uh, impose his will in a whole range of areas. Now, that includes at home, for instance, um, redoubling efforts to stop what they call illegal migration across the southern border by finishing the wall, you remember, that he promised to build, and partly did build, uh, on, the, on the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm. Um, he also wants to cut taxes, and he also wants to... Um, or has suggested that he would take an even tougher line with China, which he sees as a number one threat to American prosperity and security. At the same time, again, he's indicated that he would take a similarly sceptical, if not more so, view to the alliance with the European Union and with Europe in general, and would be less supportive of Ukraine in its fight with Russia, and would, in fact, indeed, 
seek to settle the Ukraine-Russia war in a couple of days. He's posted that he could do that. So I view that it's a mixture of hyperbole and um, over-promising and policies that are designed to appeal to the Republican base, which has proved remarkably loyal to him, despite all the allegations of wrongdoing that have been made against him. Yeah, and, and despite all of the legal travails that he has. Sammy, you, you're a former uh, US editor for The Guardian, former foreign editor there, so you've obviously been watching American politics for a long time. If you look back to 2016, you can say that, you know, um, it might have been about Hillary Clinton and a kind of sleepwalking on the American public's part into electing Donald Trump in the first place. Bit harder to countenance how he almost won the election against Joe Biden. But knowing all we know now, um, the fact that President Biden and Donald Trump, in any opinion poll, are virtually still neck and neck, what does it say to you about the American electorate in 2024? Well, I think in 2016, um, most of us, including myself, got it completely wrong. We thought, along with the Democratic Party, that in the end, people would hold their noses even if they didn't like Hillary Clinton, mm. and a lot of people didn't. Um, they would hold their noses and vote for her because the alternative was too awful to contemplate, and we were totally wrong about that. I mean, not totally wrong, because she won the popular vote, of course, by several million votes. The real problem this time is that that exactly the same thing could happen again. Mm -hmm. Um, Joe Biden has been a very activist president. In fact, he's been more creative in many ways domestically than Barack Obama, who had much more opportunity than him, had bigger majorities and so on. But he's not popular. And and the majority of American voters, when asked, both Republican and Democrat, say he's too old to stand for a second term. Um, it's a bit of a puzzle why this is the case, because actually he's been quite successful in some ways, in, for instance, in on his domestic policies on, on health care and so on. And, and the economy, given that we all suffered during the pandemic and everybody had similar problems with the cost of energy and so on, the economy's not doing that badly in America. No, but, and, but he, fail, he, he repeatedly fails to get the acknowledgement for that. So maybe if, if they take a turn, he will start to, you know, reap the, the rewards. It's, it's just, it, it, I suppose the clock is running. So I was going to say on the other side of your question about Donald Trump, we got it wrong because we didn't understand sufficiently well how angry and resentful was a large chunk of predominantly white middle-class America about the way they thought that their way of life, their living standards, their secure jobs, their 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 sense of national identity was being undermined mm. by what what Trump and others called a Washington elite. That plays out in other countries at the moment, in Britain and Ireland and elsewhere. That's right, and right across Europe. And you know, he's still at fifty percent. So clearly quite a considerable amount of Americans still feel that things haven't changed for them. But Simon, I just wanted to move on um, to the UK if I can and to remind people that you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. I'm speaking with Simon Tisdale, who's The Guardian's former US editor and foreign editor and currently chief foreign affairs commentator for The Observer. Because if we're talking about a battle for the soul of um, America and, and that's what's at stake in the US, well, maybe if we turn to the UK, it's the soul of the Tory party that's at stake here. Um, first of all, I wanted to ask you, um, 
we've had a series of different uh, Tory leaders maybe look at the fractured nature of the Tory party as they head into their election in 2024. Well, fractured is right. Um, they, um, they seem to be, most people, to be all over the place. They seem to be a party that's run out of steam, run out of ideas, run out of talent. Mm. What's very striking about the current government, um, which is a sort of third or fourth since the last election, is, is the thinness of talent, how, how second and third race a lot of ministers appear to most people. You know, there's a general feeling in Britain now that nothing much is working. It's not, mess, not just the NHS, which of course is on strike again this week, but it's the railways, it's the waterworks, it's the sewage systems, it's the... Uh, it's, it's, it's just, you look around and you ask, well, what, what actually is working well or as well as it was 10 or 15 years ago? And the answer is not very much. And most people would say that because it was under investment in the public sector, a lack of investment, a lack of growth. Um, so, you know, we have shortages of housing, we have shortages of uh, healthcare, we have, we, as a nation, we are underperforming compared with comparable economies in Europe. Mm. Not all of this can be laid at British Sunak's door, of course. He's not only been in power for a lot more than a year, but of course he's yet another unelected Tory leader. This mm. guy has got no mandate from the British people. Mm. His only mandate is from Tory backbenchers, the same as true of his trust. And of course they've, they've continued to make immigration a key election issue, but within the Tory party that could split things even further. How is that all playing out there? Well, a lot of people are puzzled by the, the amount of energy and money that's being put into blocking, you know, what is not by European standards, certainly by you know, Greek or Italian standards, a massive immigration illegal migrant problem. Most of the migration into Britain now is actually not illegal. Uh, it's taking place under the new rules brought in after Brexit. Mm. And the irony is that, that, you know, the figure that the numbers have gone up since Brexit, which was supposed, among other things, to, to reassert British control over national borders. And most of the people who are coming here now are not Europeans, but they're coming from further afield, coming from Africa or the Middle East. Although many people would welcome them, they're not from a similar linguistic or cultural background to many Europeans. So we have this strange disconnect with stories um, saying they want to stop migration, but in fact they've increased immigration from all over the world. And and this is now aggravated, of course, by shortages of care workers and people in the agriculture sector, you know, seasonal workers. Yeah, and chronic shortages. And the Tory party has split several ways about this. And then they also face a challenge from the right, from the Reform Party, which used to be UKIP and Nigel Farage and all of that, who said this week that they're going to contest every seat in the election. And they, they say that they're stories are not being tough enough on that. That's what the, that's what the Reform Party is saying. Mm-hmm. But, on, but on the more moderate wing of the Tory party, people are saying actually the government is behaving potentially illegally in contravention of international law, or this Rwanda policy, for instance, and that, um, that it's fitting the figures. And, yeah. and when it says that it, it, it's reduced the number of asylum seekers, they're actually playing light. Nobody really trusts them anymore. No. They know that a lot of people. And of course, the majority it, of people would say they don't trust them. I mean, after the Liz Trust, what she did to the economy and to mortgage rates and so on, you know, they do not trust them. 
And that, that's their biggest problem, I think. Absolutely. Look, I did want to spend some time talking to you today about um, Sir Keir Starmer and what might happen under his leadership, but perhaps you would join us on another day to discuss that. That was Simon Tisdale, The Guardian's former US editor and foreign editor and currently chief foreign affairs commentator for The Observer. Simon, thank you so much for being with us today. Now, we were talking there about the US and the UK election, but 2024 will see almost half of the global population going to the polls, as I said earlier. We may even see a general election here in Ireland, and that remains to be seen. But we do know of a number of votes that are going to take place for sure. They are the local and European Parliament elections and also three referenda that are about to take place and the election of a Lord Mayor for Limerick. So to discuss some of this now, I'm joined by Dr Jennifer Kavanagh and she is lecturer in law in South East Technology University and she specialises in constitutional and electoral law. Jennifer, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Thanks for having me on. Now, we spoke to you late last year about the reforms made by the Electoral Commission and when we were talking, we started to discuss the issue of the referenda that were coming down the line. The government hadn't published or committed to it fully then. So maybe now you take an opportunity to tell us what are the three referenda that they have announced for this year? So the first referendum that will be held, there'll be two actually held together in March. And the first one is on changing the language around the provisions on women in the home. So they're going to take out that reference to women shall not be forced by economic necessity to engage in labour outside the home because it's been annoying people since the very minute that it was mooted back Mm. uh, when the constitution was being drafted. And they've taken the decision to recognise the work of carers and what they do towards the public good. So that's the first one. And on the same day, there will also be a vote on recognising the family units aren't just the married family units. So the position of the marriage and the family based on marriage will still be important, but it will recognise that there are partnerships out there, that there's other forms of families that are not just a married couple. Mm. So they'll be the two that we'll be voting on on March the 8th. And then they're finally going to hold a referendum on us being part of the European Patent Court. The reason why we have to have a referendum for that is it's something that will affect people who are dealing with patents in Ireland. We do an awful lot of research and development. So therefore, it is a good idea that we're in with this system. It's been on the le- the referendum to-do list for quite a long time. And finally, they're getting around to it. It looks like that will probably happen around the same time as the local and European elections because Voting, the voting process is expensive. We're not talking about parties just putting out their stall on why you should vote yes or no. We're talking about the simple brass tax of printing the matter papers and getting the staff into the right places. So it makes sense for these things to happen together and for them not to be done one by one because it'll cost us an awful lot of money to do it that way. For sure, yeah. Um, so huge logistical challenge and cost and all of that. But let's go back to the referendum. So the first two, you would say, is about reflecting the the change in our society, societal change. Um yeah. Those those referenda have, will they be divisive in your view? Is there a lot of work to do by the civic groups? Does the government have a big job of work to do? How prepared are they for a divisive campaign or will it just be a box ticking exercise? Do you think we're all ready and prepared to tick those boxes? So interestingly that you've brought up the people who've worked to do for the first time ever, we will have the Electoral Commission yeah. dealing with our referendums because before we'd have the referendum commission just set up per referendum, 
anyone who was dealing with elections knew that that wasn't a good idea. We needed a permanent body. So this will be their first big public profile work to regulate uh, what's going on. There will also be the issues of online advertising, which, as we saw, were very divisive Mm. during repeal the 8th with outside bodies, outside money, trying to get involved in the situation. Google, Facebook and the rest having the whole quandary of how far do we allow people to to go with advertising? So there will be that that issue there. And we'll, we'll just have to see how it works out. There will always be people who will have solid arguments both for and against. But... To be fair to the Irish people, we have more binding referendums than any other country in the world by a country mile. Is that right? Yes. What would you put that down to? Is just we're interested in policy, public affairs, current affairs, all that? It's not just that. It's because if we want to change our constitution, it is a public referendum. Mm. Totally different system in other countries. Other countries are used to non-binding, such as the Brexit referendum. They then went political on how Brexity they wanted their Brexit to be. Mm. So we are just so used to looking at this information as a society and figuring out, right, what's the best for Ireland right now. So in fairness, there's a lot of credit due to the Irish people that we have that intelligence and we have that ability to make these binding changes and understanding what the consequences of it is. Mm. So just to back to the commission again, their job is not to promote any one side, not the government side, not the alternative side. It's just to educate and inform. So when does that start? So I would say we will see the the ads coming out fairly fast and it will just be informing us what exactly we're voting on, Mm. what the question is and what the date is. You're not allowed to have the government put forward a particular perspective. We've had a history of case law on that. It was almost like we told you once you're not supposed to do it, you're doing it again, (laughs) stop doing it. And that's how we got the Referendum Commission to begin with in the first day. So they will be making people aware of what's going on It'll be up to the parties and the civil society groups to put forward their arguments. And as you said in the introduction, there's going to be so many votes. People who like their elections and their referendums will probably be going to sleep towards the end of November, seeing counts happening in their heads. It's going to be that bad this year. So I hope we don't have a general election thrown in on top of that as well. Well, I'm not going to let you away with that. I'm going to ask you that at the end. But before we get to the end, I wanted to ask you about the direct election of a Lord Mayor in Limerick in 2024. Can you just explain to us why that's significant? So we have to cast our minds back to the last local and European elections. And if you're lucky enough to be in a voter, a voter in Waterford, like myself, Cork or Limerick, we had a vote on whether we actually wanted to have a directly elected mayor. Now, Dublin is an issue that has been hanging on there for a while and that does need to be sorted. Galway didn't get the chance at the time, but both Waterford and Cork both said, no, we don't want it. But Limerick said, yeah, let's have a go and see how this works out. So it's going to be almost like electing in your CEO Mm. of your particular area. I personally think it's a very good idea because it makes this person accountable. They will they'll be in office for a period of five years. They can go for another five year term, but then that's it. They're out. Uh, like the presidency, you only have two tries of that, and it will bring a lot more accountability to how local government is run because all the research will tell you that in a way Ireland is just far too centralised on power 
in Dublin mm. and it is good to spread it out. And indeed, so look, as, it, it, depending on how this all works out, it could have huge implications uh, for the rest of the country, you know, implementing a directly elected mayor as well. Before I let you go, just very finally, uh, Jennifer, and briefly, because time is upon us, your prediction then, do you think there's going to be an election in 2024, a general election? I would be surprised if there would be. I, I'm looking at it in three different time periods between now and the summer. Can't see any chance unless there's some sort of major issue happens. Wouldn't be too surprised if there was one, but then you've the budget to pass after the summer. So I would be thinking probably February 2025. Well, I think that's said more in hope than anything else, Jennifer, because you've yes. got to have a lot on your plate this year. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That's Dr. Jennifer Kavanagh, and she is a lecturer in law at the South East Technology University, and she specialises in constitutional law and electoral law. Jennifer, thank you once again for, for joining us here on Taking Stock. Thank you. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Coming up, growing support for the radical right-wing parties does not necessarily threaten democracy, but it could be profoundly changing to the EU. Naomi O'Leary, the Irish Times Europe correspondent, joins me after the break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. Now, in keeping with the theme of elections, there are more elections due this year in Europe, in Austria, Belgium, Croatia and Finland, and potentially, as we said earlier, maybe here in Ireland as well. But here to discuss the rise and potential influence of the far-right parties throughout Europe is Naomi O'Leary, who's the Irish Times Europe correspondent. Naomi, thank you very much for being with us on News Talk today. Thanks for having me. Now, this growing support for for radical right parties doesn't necessarily threaten democracy, but it is actually changing the face of politics across the EU. Maybe you might start today by taking us through some of the recent elections last year where the far right has had either a significant bearing on the elections or the subsequent formations of the governments there. I suppose the election that caused some of the biggest waves recently was that of the Netherlands, mm. where here builders um, emerged um, as the, the largest party in parliament. A government has yet to be formed, so we don't know how that will play out in terms of the next government yet. But he could end up as government, potentially even as prime minister um, after negotiations. Um, this is, is the latest in a series of elections in which um, radical right parties have done pretty well. Uh, it's not a uniform trend. There have been some uh, elections which went the other way. For example, in Spain, the uh, hard right Vox party did rather badly in their most recent elections and lost seats. And in Poland, the um, hard right wing law and justice party has been superseded now by a more centre right force following elections. Mm. Um, But there is a general trend across Europe of parties which we could describe in various ways, maybe national conservative, radical right, far right in some cases, the other terminology that you use is quite contentious and debated, but in a number of different countries from Italy to Germany to France to Austria, you're seeing a trend where these parties, they're winning, were polling somewhere between 20 and 30 percent on a consistent basis. So they've become a kind of a fixture in politics, in the political spectrum. Mm. And as you say, they may not be electorally successful to the extent that they make it to government, but they're sort of shaping um, a lot of the potential coalitions. And I think in Sweden as well, um, there's been 
whilst the, the, the government, the eventual government that um, was formed isn't a part, the far right isn't part of it, there's a sort of confidence and supply arrangement there where you wouldn't probably have expected that type of an alliance to, to, to happen in a country like Sweden. I certainly wouldn't. I would think of it as a left-leaning country. That's right. The Sweden Democrats um, are in a confidence and supply arrangement with the government, so allowing it to um, to pass bills and giving lending it a majority. Um, next door in Finland, the True Finns are now called Finns. They're in government. They're party of a similar heritage, very hard right. Um, so, as you mentioned, there's a number of different ways in which the successes of these parties can influence politics. One is that they get into power outright. Mm. That can happen, usually has to happen with a coalition with another party, typically the centre-right, or they can shape the policies of the other parties. And this happens to a really great uh, extent in many different countries. In some countries, the traditional centre-right parties have become almost indistinguishable from the harder right as they've adopted the rhetoric of anti-immigration and so on in a, in a kind of a bid to compete. Mm. Um, in other places, it's affected the centre-left as well. In places like Scandinavia, the centre-left has become quite into anti-immigration as well. Um, so they have a, a quite a strong effect on traditional politics with even short of winning power in many different countries. So what often binds them together is, as you say, their their hostility, their open hostility towards immigration. What, if any, other policies or similarities do they share? Opposition to immigration is the number one theme, but um, depending, they, they have slightly different manifestations in different countries. They're operating in difficult, different uh, political uh, spectrums. Mm. Um, and But it, a number of themes recur. One is hostility to green policies um, or scepticism towards green policies, uh, scepticism towards the EU. Um, they can be quite traditionalist on issues like LGBT rights and gender. Um, and Usually they are they 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 take up the major issues of the day. So for example, at the moment it's a lot of inflation, cost of living, housing crises in countries that have housing crises like the Netherlands. Usually the unifying theme behind all of this is anti-immigration, particularly hostility towards Islam. Yeah, and that brings us to the next part of that equation is like you know when they're offering solutions or what type of solutions are they offering to the public and then when they get into power are they actually delivering on their promises to stop the movement of people closing borders I'm thinking in particular here I suppose myself of um, Giorgio Meloni in Italy who has quite has played quite a deft political kind of um, movement uh, between what she said during her campaign and what she's actually trying to do in government She's been on a political journey. Her roots are in the um, inheritors of the fascist tradition in Italy. So the parties that fondly remember the days of Benito Mussolini, that's the political heritage that she has. In order to um, gain the wider political support that she needed to get into power, she moderated her positions. Um, Even though just a few years ago, you know, she until pretty recently, mm. she would have sounded quite fringe. You know, she she delves into conspiracy theories. Um, that's a really common attribute of many of these parties. They um, they entertain conspiracy theories, particularly about the deliberate, supposed deliberate re- replacement of national populations with outsiders. The Great Replacement Theory. Um, she, um, but she's she's become very conscious, particularly of her image internationally, mm. and she's sort of al- aligned herself with positions that would make her less seem less um, 
less of like she's rocking the boat less, uh, rocking the consensus less. And that sort of made her into this more moderate seeming politician. Um, in terms of what promises are made, um, to go back to the Netherlands again, um, Heert Wilders the, the, is more than anything else an anti-Islam politician. So maybe many of the um, promises um, and that he that he makes the, the solutions he offers to fixing the problems he identifies in the Netherlands are actually against the constitution. They're against a religious religious freedom. Mm. These would be things like banning headscarves, shutting down mosques. Sometimes he said the Quran, uh, the religious text, should be banned. Things like that. That that would go against, you know, religious freedom laws, which are one of the most ancient um, aspects of the Netherlands. Uh, religious freedom. Um, so, in many cases, you wonder whether uh, the things that are promised are actually doable, mm. um, especially when it comes to the obligations of international law, um, and you know particularly providing a refuge to people who are fleeing wars and conflict. Um, so that sometimes does draw these politicians into a hostile relationship with some of the institutions of democracy, such as the law, such as the rule of law um, and of free media. And in those respects, it can be quite concerning. Absolutely. And that's a really good point you make about how realistic is the rhetoric in a campaign. We've just been speaking to Simon Tisdale um, of the, the Observer about what Brexit actually delivered in terms of immigration policy. So I was just curious to get your view on that. So. One of the things, Naomi, that you have that a lot of us don't have is that wider perspective of what's going on on a micro level in all of the European countries. We've obviously, we, we're all aware we've seen an increase in protests here on immigration um, and in particular on the accommodation issue. But you're looking at it from a wider perspective, I guess. And I wanted to know if you feel um, that we should be concerned that the far right will be an influencing factor here in our upcoming local and European elections. It's almost uncanny to see what's happening in Ireland now because it's so familiar in terms of what's happened in other countries. You can even, I've looked up the headlines in places from like Belgium, Austria, the Netherlands from maybe 2016, let's say. And they're almost the same as the headlines that are now in Ireland in terms of, you know, planned accommodation for asylum seekers torched and so on. It's it's uncanny. Mm. Um, so really, this this phenomenon has come to Ireland just a little bit later than it has in the rest of Europe. And we can see that in the rest of Europe, it was accompanied by the mainstreaming of um, particularly the anti-immigration issue. A lot matters in terms of how the existing parties react to this. Uh, do they decide to adopt it for themselves? There'll be a great temptation to do that mm. um, if politicians see that there's an electorate there who are sort of hungry for um, an anti-immigration candidate. Many will be tempted. Also, there can be rivalries within parties. You can have rivalries for the leadership with some people presenting themselves as more hardline. You can go down that route. One thing that we've seen again and again, however, is that it's a it's very dangerous for mainstream parties to fight elections on the turf of the hard right or far right. If they decide that they're going to agree that immigration is going to be the major um, theme of an electoral campaign, more often than not, it, it just plays into the hands of the people who are the experts in immigration in terms of making it a political uh, theme, the people who really own immigration as an issue, and that's the hard right candidates. Um, so that's something that we've seen in a number of different countries generally where the mainstream or more traditional parties adopt um, anti-immigration rhetorics or adopt the premises of the hard right in terms of uh, agreeing that, anti that um, immigration is a problem and just discussing how to fix it. Mm. That tends to benefit their rivals um, to the right. 
Absolutely, yeah. That's a that's a really good point. So you're definitely seeing parallels or we're a lot later to the game, but it, it's happening here. Um, if you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson. I'm speaking with Naomi O'Leary, who's the Irish Times Europe correspondent. We're talking about the rise of the far right politically um, in Europe. Um, one of the things that, again, unites the, the, the hard right uh, in a political sense across Europe is that they're always very hostile to the EU. Again, going back to our previous discussion uh, with, with Simon Tisdale about Brexit, um, that was one of the biggest offerings of, of the National Party there that you know it would stop migration across Europe. And of course, it hasn't uh, had a, the effect that they wanted. They're just getting immigration from elsewhere. So why... Um, is the are the are the far right parties so anti Europe, and why is that? Do you think resonating with people right across Europe because they're getting the votes? Well, in in some cases, it's just a different vision of where power should reside. So, if you're a nationalist um, conservative party, you you know you value the nation, um, national sovereignty things like that. And you can see um, the pooling of sovereignty that happens in certain policy areas through membership of the EU. Um, You can see that as a threat and want to take it back. There's often hostility as well to um, what they see as some of the strictures of the of EU laws um, on things like it could be anything really, but anything from environmental standards to um, you know, human rights or um, a lot of this is is sort of lumped into the same basket, even though it's not always the EU that actually kind of imposes these things. Um, so there can there can be hostility there. Um, it's it's a deep tradition in in these countries where it's just a, it's a rivalry in terms of where sovereignty should reside. But Brexit itself has had a really interesting effect on the hard right and far right parties of Europe. In that, whereas once they used to advocate for leaving the EU, they don't anymore because they've seen what happened in Britain, um, and it's not a great advertisement for leaving the EU. Um, so what we've seen in France. The Netherlands, Germany, a number of different countries, Italy as well, is um, parties that are traditionally Eurosceptic moderating. So they no longer call for referendums to leave the EU. They say, oh, the EU needs to be changed or reformed or something like that. Um, And that's more or less the position of every party anyway. So they've really moderated quite a lot. Tactically, Um, tactically, that's very interesting from their perspective because they're, I suppose, not uh, leaving themselves a hostage to fortune like David Cameron did, where there's (laughs) an election and a referendum hanging over the head. Um, Naomi, I wanted to ask you what you feel about um, the, I suppose, the, the, wider geopolitical implications of all of this. So we also have a US presidential election happening this year, um, as we spoke about earlier. If Donald Mm. Trump were to succeed there, how do you think that might affect the far right across Europe? The last Trump victory, I think, was a big boost um, to member of many of the far right parties in in Europe. They saw it as, along with Brexit, as being a victory and maybe a sign of, you know, a a big sweeping change to come. So um, that will be interesting to see. It makes relations between the EU or Europe and the US more difficult because if you're national sovereigntist and you, you're an America first guy or a France first person or, you know, whatever it happens to be, that means that you're going to have clashes of interests um, and you're going, it leads to um, to clashes in, in it. whenever you have nationalist governments, they'll, they'll tend to have more arguments with their neighbours about issues. Um, we see that even within Europe when, when uh, far right or hard right parties gain power. 
Uh, they quite often have disputes with their neighbours about issues that are just of, you know, sort of emotional concern. Um, whenever you have more part, more governments that are hard right or far right, it can mean that it's more difficult for international alliances, mm. such as with the United States. A big one to watch is what the effect would be in terms of Europe's support for Ukraine in defending against Russia. A lot of these parties have an awful lot in common with Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. Like he's almost, he's almost like a really good example of what they do in that he does he uses many of the same political tactics, um, appealing to traditional values, anti-LGBT. Um, many they have a lot in common. Mm. Uh, many of them um, admire him for that um, and are a bit sceptical about support for Ukraine. Um, and then also in the Middle East, a lot of them are very pro-Israel. It's not uniform, but many of the hard right or far right parties are very pro-Israel because they see Israel as the front line of a sort of civilizational war between the so-called West or Western values and Islam. So a number of them have that attribute and are very um, staunchly pro-Israel. Well, Naomi, um, you've delivered a fascinating insight uh, into what's happening across Europe and also from a wider perspective, you're going to have a very busy year with all of those elections happening right across the member states and indeed the um, upcoming European Parliament elections. But I really enjoyed talking to you today and thank you for taking the time. That was Naomi O'Leary, the Irish Times Europe correspondent. Thanks very much. Well, that's all we have time for this week, folks. Thanks to all of today's guests for their time and their insight. Just a reminder that while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy. Simon Keane was on research and Hugo de Silva-Scott was on sound. Any comments on any of today's items, please email us on takingstock at newstalk.com. Anton is up next with all of your Sunday newspapers and lots, lots more. But for now... From Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.